Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher. Into my colleague Julia Chatterley, this is First Move. And here is your need to know. Post-Brexit vote, British lawmakers pose to vote on a trade deal with the EU and vaccine victory. The UK is the first to approve the AstraZeneca drug. And McConnell's moves, Senate leader box higher stimulus payments for now. It is Wednesday, my friends. Let's make a move. Welcome to us, Move. So good to have you with us on this next to last trading day of the year, New Year's Eve Eve. Uh, U.S. stocks pulled back from all-time highs on Tuesday, but they could hit fresh records in early trading today amid some positive, very positive news on vaccines. The U.K. has just approved the Oxford AstraZeneca shot for emergency use, the second COVID vaccine to get the green light there. Fears that the U.S. vaccine rollout is going slower than planned did hurt sentiment yesterday as well. Uh, and to Tuesday's tally of 3,700 Americans who have died from COVID-19 was actually the highest ever in just one day. Shares have turned lower in Europe as the UK Parliament gets set to vote on the post-Brexit trade agreement with the EU. Asia finished mixed with Japanese shares pulling back from 30-year highs. Chinese stocks rallied 1%. Meantime, Beijing and the EU have reached an agreement on their long-awaited investment partnership. The deal, which has been years in the making, will make it easier for European firms to access some Chinese markets. Chinese President Xi Jinping says it will help the global economy recover from the COVID crisis too. Now, let's get right to the drivers for you. In this hour, the UK Parliament, in about half an hour from now, is expected to approve the post-Brexit trade deal with the European Union. Take a look here. You're looking at Uh, Live pictures of debate inside the House of Commons ahead of the vote in half an hour's time. I don't believe we have those live pictures uh, right now. But this is certainly a significant day in politics, uh, with um, Britain also announcing a Brexit uh, breakthrough, rather, on vaccines. I want to go straight now to Selma Abdelaziz, who's following both stories for us. So, Selma, this vote in terms of the House of Commons is happening remotely. It is an emergency session, but because of the virus, obviously it's happening virtually uh, this time around. But after four years of endless debate of Britain basically being in limbo, two general elections, um, two prime ministers in terms of Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson did promise that he was going to get Brexit done and he's doing just that. That's right, Zane. And in some ways, you're watching this debate play out in Parliament kind of for the final time. It's being put to bed. It's being put to rest. This debate is behind us. And that's what you heard from both sides, both the leader of the opposition Labour Party and Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who opened this five-hour debate by saying, of course, that this is a victory, that this deal is good for Britain, good for business, good for the economy of the country, that it would allow uh, this population to claim back its sovereignty, claim back its national destiny. 
And not only that, he argued it's good for the EU as well. He said ultimately Britain has been a reluctant member of the club and a good friend, a best friend uh, uh, across the channel is better than a reluctant member uh, of the EU. So really touting this deal as a victory, uh, pushing, of course, his party to vote for it, pushing everyone to vote for it. Now on terms of the opposition Labour Party leader, Keir Stammer, of course, he said he doesn't like this deal, but he's going to vote for it anyways, because the only other option is no deal. But again, watching this remain, leave, stay debate play out for the first time and now entering this next phase of this deal, which will go into place, of course, on the 31st um, and, and, and entering this new friendship. So what's in the deal? It's a no tariffs, no quota deal. That means that you can trade without taxes and there is no limit on the amount of goods. There will still be cooperation on issues like security, climate change. Uh, but of course, the key difference now is there will be borders. UK citizens can no longer just travel to the EU. They must have visas. There's going to be time limits. There's going to be stamps. There's a lot for businesses to get their minds around as well. Remember, this deal just went in uh, Christmas time. So they only had about a week to prepare for this. Uh, so a lot happening here. But the key thing to remember is the end of one relationship and the beginning of another that could completely transform Britain's economy and its relationship with its most important partners. Zane? Yeah, you mentioned Keir Starmer, obviously the Labour Party leader, coming out and saying, listen, you know, I don't love this deal. It's relatively thin, but what is the alternative? What is the alternative? The only other alternative there is is crashing out of uh, the EU without a deal. What's significant, though, is that Boris Johnson actually did manage to do something that Theresa May failed at which is to get those hardliners in the Conservative Party on board with his deal. These are the same people, by the way, Salma, who made Theresa May's life extraordinarily difficult. How did he manage that? What was it about this particular deal that got that group on board? Because that made all the difference here. It's been a very dramatic four and a half years watching this play out, Zane, as you know. And ultimately, the debate became more and more and more to the right, right? You had people who were sort of in the middle trying to bridge the divide, like uh, Prime Minister Theresa May, who was trying to find a deal that could make all sides happy. And ultimately, as you said, changing through all these administrations, changing through leadership, you ended up with people who were probably the most hardline Brexiteers. And that's why you heard the opposition Labour leader, Keir Stammer, saying that this deal is thin. But that is, these are the very uh, people who led this movement, who said we need to leave the EU, who said Britain is better outside the EU. And ultimately, they are the ones bringing this deal, delivering on it. In some ways, it was a matter of time. It was a matter of this had to be done. There were deadlines uh, that need to, to be made. But it was also just in a way about distilling down this argument to the most hardline Brexiteers when they took control, when they took government. That debate, that negotiation with the EU changed. And now we have the deal that we do. And, and as you said, this debate was ultimately in or out, how it plays out, how it affects regular, regular people here, how it impacts a family or a business, that's yet to be seen, Zane. And we are looking at, uh, I believe, live pictures inside the House of Commons, which is extraordinarily thin. Um, not many people there. Some MPs actually choosing to come in and cast their votes in person, but the vast majority actually going to be casting their vote remotely. In about 20 or so minutes from now, we will hear the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, come out and tell us the results of this vote. The vote is expected to pass quite significantly. I do want to turn now to some other big news, though, Selma, out of the UK, and that is, of course, uh, the approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine. How does this change the game for the UK? Just when you look at 
Some of the logistical challenges with the Pfizer vaccine in terms of the temperature it needs to be stored at, the cost, that sort of thing. How does actually getting the AstraZeneca vaccine out uh, into the arms of ordinary British citizens, how does that change the game for Britain, given what that country is dealing with right now with the second strain? Well, Zane, if you ask the health secretary of this country, Matt Hancock, he'll tell you this changes everything. He'll tell you this will end the pandemic sooner. He'll tell you this will make Britain safer. He'll say that now we have enough vaccines to vaccinate the entire population and that hopefully by the spring or uh, sometime in the middle of next year, that could happen. So it's, it's a massive deal. It's a massive change and not just for people here in the UK, of course. This was a, a vaccine that was developed and invented and created right here in the UK at Oxford. There's a lot of national pride around it, but it's the deep globally, because as you said, uh, this vaccine All right. Um, okay, it looks as though we're having some technical difficulties there with Selma's uh, microphone. Um, all right, let's let's actually talk more about the AstraZeneca vaccine, the Austrian AstraZeneca vaccine that's been approved in the UK with Phil Black. So, um, Phil, we were talking there about some of the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine compared to Pfizer when it comes to storage and temperatures that it needs to be stored at. But initially, there were some issues with this vaccine because the effectiveness um, was a bit hazy at the very beginning. Um, it was thought to be only 60% effective compared to Pfizer's 90% effectiveness. Um, that then sort of seemed to change if you sort of change the dosage that you give people. Are they now confident that with this dosage they're recommending that it will live up to the effectiveness of both Pfizer and Moderna? What they're confident, Zane, I guess, is that it's going to make a significant difference and provide significant protection. What they can't say with certainty yet, because of some of the factors you've just touched on there, is what the ultimate effectiveness is and what the ideal dose is. And that's because the trials, well, they threw up some head-scratching results as a result of a mistake that was made over the course of the trials. At one point, a relatively small number of the volunteers received a dose that was less than it was supposed to be, uh, a half dose, it's described as. They followed these people anyway, and what they found is that these people who received a half dose followed by a full dose, well, their ultimate level of protection seemed to be higher than the bulk uh, of the trial group, which received two full doses. And so that's why you've got a series of different statistics um, from Oxford University and AstraZeneca in terms of describing what its efficacy is. So that half dose group, around 2,000 people or more than that, they got 90% protection. The bulk of the group, though, which received two full doses, and this is the dose uh, regimen that's going to be rolled out across the UK, you're right, that was 62%. Uh, I mean, 62% of people did not develop symptomatic COVID-19 infection two weeks after the second dose. But perhaps more importantly than that figure, they say no one in the trial group developed a significant or severe infection, no one required hospital treatment. So that level of protection alone would be hugely significant to this country, to any country's efforts uh, towards dealing with uh, the virus and would bring about considerable, uh, I guess you'd have to say, ease on the pressure that this country's health system is under at the moment. So. And that was going to be my next question. I mean, when you think about what's happening there in the UK, talk of more lockdowns, talk of more tier four areas. Um, 
how much, how, what significant, what sort of po- po- portion of the population would need to be vaccinated with either Pfizer or the AstraZeneca vaccine in order for life to go back to normal, in order for some of these restrictions in parts of the southeast to be lifted? Yeah, I, I think the scientific view on at what point immunity reaches a tipping point, if you like, where the country can return to something like normal is, well, there's some conjecture uh, over this. But what they are looking for here is maximum possible coverage in excess of 80% of the population, uh, ideally. And what the government here now says is that with the authorization for this vaccine and the decision to roll out and prioritise first dose uh, of this vaccine, uh, it means that you're going to get pretty substantial coverage across the population relatively quickly. And it has led the government today to to begin making what seem like extraordinarily positive predictions. Uh, The health secretary, Matt Hancock, says that by spring, uh, essentially, this should all be over. The coronavirus should be behind uh, everyone in in the UK, which, as I say, is an extraordinary idea. Uh, But that's what they're talking about. That's what they believe the capability of this vaccine uh, is, and in particular, maximising that potential through focusing on getting the first shot to many, as many people as possible to try and build some level across, of immunity across a broad section of the population uh, instead of trying to get two doses uh, to people. That's a key shift in tactics that the government has announced today, uh, along with the authorisation of this new vaccine. Right, so there is some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of uh, spring there. Uh, Phil Black, life for us there. Thank you so much. Right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. The pandemic is killing record numbers of Americans. More than 3,700 deaths from COVID-19 were reported on Tuesday. And with more Americans in hospital with the virus than ever before, that number is likely to be exceeded. Making things worse, the new and more infectious variant of the coronavirus, coronavirus uh, virus rather, found in the UK has now been discovered in Colorado. Emergency crews... Um, in Croatia are searching for survivors after a powerful earthquake that hit the center of the country on Tuesday. It was the second quake in two days. At least seven people are known to have died. It's reported the worst hit town of Petrinja has no running water or electricity. The mayor has put out a call for emergency aid. And a landmark moment for women's rights in Argentina. Cheers rang through Buenos Aires after Argentina's Senate passed a historic bill legalizing abortion. This has been a divisive issue in the predominantly Roman Catholic country. The bill galvanized activists on both sides of the debate. After the break, as futures point to a higher open on the second to last day of trading on 2020, John Petridis is here to talk about the market in 2021. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. You are looking at live pictures of a session of the British House of Commons. The debate for a lot of MPs is actually happening remotely. That's why you're seeing lawmakers right now in their living room. Some MPs did actually make it into the House of Commons, but most of them will be debating and voting remotely. Uh, They are debating, of course, the post-Brexit deal the government has struck with the EU. We are expecting a vote in about 10 minutes or so from now. Uh, We'll hear from the Health Secretary as well, possibly announcing new restrictions on movement across the UK and discussing the approval of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine as well. Lots of breaking news happening out of the UK right now. We'll bring everything to you live as and when it happens. Let's take a look 
at uh, the action happening on Wall Street, where futures are pointing to a subtly higher open for U.S. stocks. The major averages are all set to trade near all-time highs again after pulling back from records on Tuesday. The S&P 500, Nasdaq and a small cap Russell 2000 are on track to close out 2020 with double-digit gains. A spectacular comeback after the market route we saw in the spring. Chalk that up to the unprecedented monetary support from the Federal Reserve and the ongoing fiscal support from Congress as well. Bitcoin may also end the year on a high note. Uh, The cryptocurrency rose to an all-time high of more than $28,000 earlier today before pulling back a bit. It's up more than 40% so far this month. John Petridis joins us live now. He is the portfolio manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. John, thank you so much for being with us. So when you look back at this year, you know, the Nasdaq up 44%, 44% at a time when the entire economy was shut down, where people were unemployed, where people didn't even have enough money for groceries uh, or to pay their bills, people relying on extra money, direct payments from Congress. I mean, walk us through that major disconnect and what you expect in terms of that disconnect going into the new year. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wrote a commentary uh, that that, that uh, uh, we're working on right now called the Twilight Zone Market, and it's basically it goes to you know if on New Year's Eve in 2019 you partied really hard and fell asleep and didn't wake up until one year later, and the only thing you saw was your portfolio. The first thing you looked at was your financial statements, and you saw that you know on a balanced portfolio of stocks to bonds, you're up. I don't know, 10, 12% on, on a blended basis, you're thinking to yourself, hey, you know, it was a good year. Nothing really happened. And, uh, and, and, then you st- and then you start going through all the headlines and you're like, wait a minute, what is this COVID thing? And you start reading out, you know, all the social unrest and the political divisiveness. And, and, and I think the moral of the story is, you know, don't trade off of emotions. Uh, make, make sure you're sticking to your long-term uh, financial goals and, and plans and, and, who, and, and make sure that you're positioned uh, you know, uh, accordingly for who you are as an investor, because guess what? The blo- you know, this is 12 years since the financial crisis, and we've had two black swan events uh, occur. So, and they do happen, and they're happening more frequently than most people expect. So, so, so the idea is to uh, to understand who you are an investor and, and make sure you're diversified, because it has truly been an extraordinary year. And if you didn't touch your portfolio, guess what? You had a you had a pretty good year in your financial in your assets. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we talk a lot about the people that are that are suffering financially, but it's just crazy to think about all the people that have actually thrived this year. And that is what the mm-hmm. market is basically representing. So yesterday, uh, the stocks did actually hit record highs when they thought that there was a chance that Congress would approve those $2,000 mm-hmm. direct payments to individuals, especially people who had suffered this mm-hmm. year. The idea being that they would go out and spend that money and boost the American economy. Now, when, that, mm-hmm. when it turned out yesterday that was less likely to happen, we saw the markets obviously dip. In the last two days of trading today, especially, what else does the market have to look forward to in 2020? Well, I think, uh, the, in my opinion, the biggest thing that's traded, you know, right now we're on light volume. I, I think most people in the world are exhausted, particularly in the financial world. Traders are exhausted. Um, and, and I think, you know, in probably in early December, most people uh, have basically made their bets through the end of the year. And I think what's pushing the market slightly higher, the next thing to look forward to is on Tuesday when we have the Senate runoff in Georgia. Because if the Democrats win both seats, then you have a, 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 a blue state sweep and, uh, you know, Biden then has the, the ability to pass through 
his corporate tax increase of 28%, which would be bad for stocks. Um, so, but what you're seeing is I think there's more confidence that the Republicans are going to win at least one of the seats, which provides for a split government. And although that may drive us crazy uh, on, on Main Street because a split government leads to more infighting and, and, and divisiveness, from a market standpoint, uh, it's actually the best outcome. Stocks generally do better uh, when when government is split because then neither side can pass through uh, their ultimate agenda. So nothing changes. So you know, it's almost the most the most certainty you'll ever get is if you have a split government because everything's going to stay the same and nothing's going to change. Basically, G- generally speaking, from a stock market standpoint, right? That that that's that's solely how it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Is it, it, it's typically the best outcome. Um, and, and so just in terms of the health crisis facing this country, Anthony Fauci's come out and said, listen, things are going to get much, much worse. Obviously, a lot of people traveled over the holidays. People wanted to see their friends and families, uh, people boarding flights. That meant that, you know, the virus spread more rapidly. And now you've got this new variant. So given the fact that in the month of December, just under 70,000 Americans have died, you know, going into the new year, that number could obviously continue to rise. Those milestones could continue to be even more grim. What does that mean for the country economically, do you think? Well, for 2021, I am more bullish on the economy and the stock market. I'll get to that reason for a second. You know, I laid forth, you know, one risk to the market, and that is if the Democrats sweep uh, in, in Georgia on Tuesday. The second one is clearly what's the acceptance of the vaccine uh, and, and how long does it take before we get to a socially uh, to be before socially distanced economy is a thing of the past? You know, I personally thinking, you know, September, October, you know, you have another eight to nine months uh, before I think we all can take a big sigh of, uh, of relief. The vaccine is distributed. Uh, but if that takes longer and it's this time next year and we're still in this environment, you know, it's going to be a rough year for the economy and the stock market. On the other hand, why am I more bullish? Uh, you know, you know, in, in, in economics, it's all about supply and demand. And Zainet, there's one thing we have an excess supply of. It's cash. You know, by and large, and I'm not talking Main Street, I'm talking more on, on, on corporate America. You know, the cost to borrow money is zero. Interest rates are so low. Uh, you know, look at what's happening in the IPO market. Money market mutual funds are at record highs. Uh, you know, there's a lot of capital. There's a lot of cash sloshing around and also sitting on the sidelines. So, you know, if we saw what happened with Airbnb and DoorDash, and you're seeing the wave of mergers and acquisitions happening in the healthcare sector, the technology sector, even the energy sector and financials recently, you saw some, you know, regional banks merge, you know, that's going to be cash is going to want a people are going to be looking for a higher rate of return than zero percent, which is what you're earning on your cash right now, uh, going into 2021. So I think that on the dips, people are going to be buyers, you're going to see more IPOs come to the market. You're going to see more mergers and acquisitions because people have access to capital. People have excess cash and they're going to look for a home. And I think risk assets are, are going to prevail uh, in, in 2021. So people are going to be much more eager to invest just after a year of having their cash sit on the sidelines. But I do want to ask about what happens to tech stocks next year. Mm. You talk about there being a vaccine. I mean, obviously, for most businesses, that's a great thing. But for a lot of tech stocks that have really benefited from people not being at work, from people being at home in front of their computers. What happens mm-hmm. to those stocks in the new year, tech stocks, especially the Nasdaq, et cetera, uh, once there yeah. is a vaccine, do you think? Yeah, it, it's a great question, because if you add tech plus, you know, Amazon, Google and Facebook, you know, that makes up like 35 percent of the S&P 500 currently. 
So that, that it's a big allocation, and, and, and where as goes tech, so goes the S&P 500 index. Um, but I think what happened in November, the market really tipped its hand uh, onto where stocks will move, and it all depends on the acceptance and the effectiveness of the vaccine, right? In uh, the second, the first week in November, we got the, the initial rollout of the Pfizer vaccine, and it showed a 95% efficacy. And then what happened in November? You saw cyclicals rally, energy, financial, small cap, international, and what underperformed was large cap tech and U.S. treasuries. Well, if we get a faster resolution to COVID in 2021, well, then you're going to see that trade play out again. You'll see cyclicals, you'll see small cap, you'll see international outperform tech and treasuries. And if we don't, if, uh, you know, if, if the, the socially distanced economy lasts longer than we're expecting, you'll see a repeat of 2020 and you'll see what has driven this market. And that has been U.S. treasuries and big cap tech. So it, it, the whole play is a function of how fast will we roll, uh, you know, the vaccine out. Remember, this is very different than the great financial crisis. The financial crisis was that we were too levered and that the uh, housing uh, market was in a bubble. This is a light switch, right? The vaccine came in. We shut the economy off. We flicked the switch of the, uh, of the light switch. The, the virus is spreading through the economy. And once we get through it, we're going to flip the light switch back on and people are going to go back to spending money again. So it, it, whereas whereas getting out of the financial crisis in 2008, 2009 was really, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts because we had to delever and we had to re-regulate the banking system. So so you're going to see the trade turn around pretty quickly, but it's all dependent on how fast the vaccine gets rolled out. All right, John Petitas, life was there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. We are still expecting uh, the British Parliament to vote on the post-Brexit trade deal imminently. What we just saw there, I believe we just missed him, was, oh, there he is, Michael Gove. Minister Michael Gove speaking, one of the handful of MPs who actually came in to uh, the House of Commons today. That vote once again happening imminently in about three or four minutes from now. Stay with us. You're watching First Move. All right, let's recap the latest developments in the pandemic in the U.S. More than 3,700 deaths from COVID-19 were reported Tuesday, the highest since the pandemic began. And with more Americans in hospital with the virus than ever before, it's unlikely that record is final. Making things worse, a new, more infectious variant of the coronavirus from the U.K. has now been discovered in Colorado. Our Stephanie Elam is in that state's capital, Denver. So the discovery of this new variant, Stephanie, could not have come at a worse time. No, not at all. And I think for many of us, it was just a matter of time that we were expecting that it would be on American soil. The surprising part is where we are. Uh, we are outside of Denver, probably closer to Colorado Springs at this point. It is a rural county, Elbert County, where we are. And we've confirmed that this is the nursing home here where we know that one confirmed case and one suspected case of this variant that first was uh, uh, noticed in the UK. What we do know is that the first confirmed patient uh, to have it is a 28-year-old male, as well as another male who is the suspected one. Both of them were working here in non-clinical roles. What we understand is that they were here because there was a previous outbreak about two and a half weeks ago of COVID-19 here. And because of that, they were coming in to fill some space and help you know get some jobs done around here both of those men they do believe contracted the virus here now they are both outside of this county isolating but obviously this does make people wonder zane where the virus came from and how did it end up here in rural colorado
All right, Stephanie Elam, live for us there. Thank you so much. And we'll have much more on the Brexit uh, trade deal after this short break. Don't go away. A lot is happening in the British Parliament today. Lawmakers have been debating and are voting on the post-Brexit trade deal between the UK and the EU. And also the health secretary is set to give an update on the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine approval uh, and possible new restrictions as well to curb the pandemic. You're looking at live pictures uh, inside the House of Commons where the vote is taking place right now as I speak. We're expected to get that vote, I'm told, in about five or six minutes from now. We'll have the results. The vote, by the way, is expected to pass quite easily. Let's bring in Selma Abdelaziz, who joins us live now from London. So Selma, just walk me through exactly what is expected to happen today. We know that the vote is taking place right now. Uh, after the vote in the House of Commons, we know it's expected to be debated and then voted on uh, in the House of Lords. And then Boris Johnson will give it his final signature and then make it the law of the land. Just walk us through more details about what is happening today. Let's just take a pause for a moment because this is this is historical, Zane. People have been waiting for this deal now for four and a half years. This has been a debate in this country for many years longer. We are watching them vote on this deal right now. And as you said, it is expected to pass quite easily. Um, uh, the opposition Labour Party, although opposed to this deal, the leader, uh, Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, saying that this is a thin deal, it's not a great deal, but it's the only one we've got. And of course, Prime Minister Boris Johnson touting this deal as a victory, as a way for this country to gain its sovereignty back, to gain its national destiny back, as he says. So this vote taking place now, a historical moment, a step forward in the relationship with the EU. Afterwards, of course, it will go to the House of Lords. And later on, we're going to see Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Downing Street at 3 p.m. local time signing this into law, and then it all kicks off December 31st. So very fast-moving events here, but, but ultimately this is about putting this debate to rest. For years now, this country has been embroiled in leave or remain in the debate of whether this will make the economy stronger or weaker, whether this is better the for the future or worse. Well, one side has won, and that side is the leave side. And now starts the new relationship. And the real litmus test of this deal, Zane, will be the economy, will be how it impacts businesses, how it impacts ordinary families. But for right now, I think all sides can agree, let's put the debate behind us. This is real. It's no longer theoretical. It's happening now. Let's try to make the best of it. Zane. And what does all this mean for Boris Johnson's legacy? I mean, you think about the fact that, look, he came into office promising that he was going to definitely get Brexit done. He went so far as to threaten a no-deal Brexit, which obviously made a lot of people nervous. He managed to get it through just in the nick of time. We saw that deal on Christmas Eve. Now this vote is happening one day before the Brexit deadline, which is tomorrow at 11 p.m. at night local time. Um, and then you put it all into context. The fact that Britain this year has had its worst recession in 300 years. Um, and all the pressure in terms of the coronavirus and the lockdowns and all the pressure on Boris Johnson to get a deal done because of what would happen to the British economy if he didn't. What does all of this mean for his legacy? I think Prime Minister Boris Johnson would say that he has triumphed, triumphed mightily for this country, using his own, his own language there, his own words there. This is something that he says is best for not only his country, but best for the EU as well. His argument is essentially that this is a deal that brings back Britain's sovereignty, that allows it to take control of its destiny and its laws and its future. He argues that it's not only good for the UK, that it's good for the EU, because ultimately the UK was a reluctant member of the club. And so 
this friendship, uh, which is the way that he describes it, this friendship will be ever closer, ever better, more functional with the UK out of the EU. And I think he sees his destiny, having been someone who was at the lead of this vote leave campaign, as, as finally giving that back to the, to the country, the control back to the country. Now, his critics will argue, of course, that this is a terrible mistake, that this is a legacy that will be a dark history for Britain, that will ultimately be a less competitive country, that its economy will be smaller and weaker, and that leaving the EU is a step backwards, not a step forwards. But these debates now, as I said, Zane, the leave, the remain, doesn't matter now. It's been theoretical. It's been hanging over our heads for years now, but the debate is over. Now comes the practical part of putting this into action and of seeing what happens next. And I think that's where his legacy stands is still is still in question, Zane, because we have to see how this plays out before we ultimately know if it was good or bad, if it's better or if it's worse. So the next step now, yes, this is the prime minister who's had to face a pandemic, had to make a deal during a pandemic. And now he has to put this into action and make sure, as you said, that uh, the economy triumphs from this, especially at a time where it's already been so weakened by this pandemic, Zane. And Selma, you and I talked uh, about half an hour ago about, you know, just how remarkable, remarkable it was that Boris Johnson was actually able to get both parties on board. Obviously, Keir Stamer rallying his group, telling them, listen, let's vote for this deal because the alternative, by the way, is actually much, much worse. Um, and also the hardliners in the Conservative Party who did not support Theresa May, made her life a living hell, now supporting this deal with Boris Johnson because they say that um, the deal gives the UK really back its sovereignty in a way that the deals that Theresa May negotiated with the EU simply didn't. But what about the actual critics beyond um, the parties? What about um, fishery organisations? What about the Scottish National Party, which has spoken on behalf of the fishing industries that it represents, saying that they don't like what's in this deal? The SNP actually coming out and saying that this particular deal is going to make it much, much easier for them to boost the case for their independence again. So, so just walk us through what critics of this deal within the UK are saying about this particular deal. There was some really dramatic moments there with the Scottish National Party where Prime Minister Boris Johnson was essentially accusing them of giving up sovereignty of their national waters, of, of national waters there, to the EU. So a lot of very heated debates about what it means to have sovereignty, to have control of your own borders, of your own waters, to have control of the flow of goods and people and humans in and out of your country. So yes, this is still sort of in some ways a very heated debate. But what we've watched happen over these four and a half years is that debate has sort of distilled further and further and further down until you've sort of gotten them to the most hardline Brexiteers. We've watched administrations change, prime ministers change, ideas and negotiations change. At so many points, both sides willing to walk away from the talks and just throw their hands up and say no deal. So to get this deal through, it is a massive accomplishment. You can't shy away from that. And, and Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his government would say international trade deals usually take years, a decade even, to negotiate. So to be able to do this in the time that they have, the government would say, is a victory. Okay. And okay, um, ultimately, Selma, again, that Selma, it, it looks as though, Selma, I have to interrupt you because it looks as though Sir Lindsay Hoyle is announcing the results of the vote. Let's listen in. Thank you, Liam. We now come to the money resolution to move formally. I beg to move. The question is, as on the order paper, as many of that opinion say aye. 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 The country, no. I think the ayes have it. The ayes have it. We now have the Ways and Means motion to be moved formally. I beg to move. The question is, as on the order paper, as many of that opinion say aye. 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 The contrary, no, I think the ayes have it, the ayes have it.
Under order of the House today, we now move to the Committee of the Old House. Order. Clerk to read the title of the bill. European Union. Future Relationship Bill. Point of order, Mr David Linden. Thank you very much, Madam Deputy Speaker. We find ourselves in the rather bizarre situation today when we are being told that Parliament is taking back control, where this entire charade of Committee of the Whole House will conclude without any member being able to speak, or indeed the 14 pages worth of amendments that have been tabled by honourable and right honourable members being able to be considered. So can I seek your clarity and your guidance, Madam Deputy Speaker, if Parliament is taking back control, why on earth is it that Parliament has been forced to debate this charade of a bill in five hours and being neutered entirely during Committee of the Whole House? I, under- I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his point of order, and it is a perfectly reasonable question to ask at this stage in the proceedings. But as Mr Speaker said just before he left the chair, under the order of the House today, we now move to Committee of the Whole House, The House decided this morning on the timetable motion under which we are operating, and that is the answer to the Honourable Gentleman's question. But I'm sure he will also have noted that, unusually, we are in a position where this bill, being taken in these unusual circumstances at this time, can only be either rejected or passed in its entirety. And therefore, the opportunity for any change has long passed. And the Honourable Gentleman cannot possibly argue that these matters have not been discussed and argued at length and in depth for many years. Indeed, the Honourable Gentleman, the Right Honourable Gentleman at the back there might say for decades. So, we are now in the Committee of the Whole House and under the order of today, I am now required to put the question necessary to dispose of proceedings in committee. The question is that clauses 1 to 40 stand part of the bill and that schedules 1 to 6 be the first to six schedules to the bill. As many of that opinion say aye. Aye. Of the contrary, no. I think the ayes have it. The ayes have it. Order. Order. That concludes proceedings in committee. Thanks, Sarah. I've written all around. Oh, fine. Right, you've just been watching a fairly significant moment there in the House of Commons. Uh, you heard Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, saying that the ayes have it, the vote passed. Uh, as we knew that it would, but very significantly, 521 votes in favour of the Brexit bill uh, and 73 votes against. So 521 votes in favour. Uh, let's bring in Selma Abdulaziz again, who's standing by for us. So, Selma, ju- just walk us through what are sort of the main highlights of this Brexit trade deal, just in terms of uh, the rights of, of UK citizens who are living abroad, who perhaps want to travel to mainland Europe. How long can they stay? That sort of thing. And then, of course, the fact that, you know, there's not going to be tariffs. But what will it mean for businesses, especially when it comes to the transition period? This is going to be the next few months are going to be quite tough for businesses to actually adjust to the new rules. What are some of those new rules? 
So this is a no tariffs, no quota deal. That means you can trade as many goods as you want without having the tariffs on them. And there is no limit on the number of goods that you can trade. Now, uh, there will, of course, now be borders, hard borders between the UK and the Schengen region. That means British citizens will have to get visas if they want to stay, work or study in uh, European countries. They'll be subject to different rules, of course. There's no hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. That was a major sticking point, of course. They'll continue to cooperate with the EU on issues like climate change and security and they'll continue to contribute to some programs for a few years but ultimately this is the start of the friendship this is the start of the beginning this is the start of when you cross into Europe having your passport checked if you are a British citizen and for businesses there's going to be a lot to figure out here Uh, remember Zane this deal only was reached on Christmas Eve so when people were away from their work and now they just have a matter of days to go through what was a more than 1500 page document so a lot of rules and uh, I think Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his government are very aware of this because ultimately this means more bureaucracy, more checks, more rules, more restrictions to go through for these businesses, more red tape. Now, they argue that ultimately this is better. The government would say this gains back sovereignty, gives businesses the right to to set their own destiny, allows the UK to negotiate its own trade deals with other countries. But of course, critics will say, listen, this only makes things more complicated for businesses. These are more rules that they have to keep up with more restrictions that have to come into place. And again, I just want to remind everyone, deal was made Christmas Eve, just a matter of days to figure out over 1,500 pages, Zane. Yeah, it was made on Christmas Eve, and now they have one day to basically rush it through uh, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. They have to get it done very, very quickly. Um, so, So, Selma, just given the ease at which this passed, you know, 521 votes, four uh, to 73 votes against. What does that mean for Boris Johnson's standing within his own party? How much does it boost his standing within his own party? Zane, if you remember the phrase we kept hearing over and over again is the clock is ticking. And essentially what's happened here, why you have such a strong support for this deal is not necessarily because everyone agrees with it, but because they've run out of time, Zane. Something had to be done. Otherwise, it was no deal. It was the cliff edge. And that's what the opposition leader, Sir Keir Stummer, said. He said, listen, I don't like this deal. It's thin. I think there's a lot of gaps in it. I think it's going to be a a lot of trouble for businesses, but it's this or no deal and no deal is much worse for this country. And that's what it really came down to here is the clock was ticking. A decision had to be made. They've been negotiating with the EU now for years, of course, and now it's time to to take the next step. And I think that's the consensus that you heard in the House of Commons today from all aisles, from all sides, is now it's time to put the debate, this very bitter, divisive, polarizing debate that's really, really uh, uh, divided this country now for so many years. It's now time to put that debate aside. We have the rules. We have the deal. We have the restrictions. Now let's put them into action and see what the best we can make out of them is. And again, a no tariffs, no quota deal, uh, a, a lot to go through here for businesses and a lot of restrictions that they're going to have to figure out overnight. But the one thing I do want to bring up is on the eve of making this deal, essentially what happened was we had this massive uh, drama play out on the border in Dover, where uh, because of this new variant of COVID, the border was shut down. And that happened just as negotiations were heating up in the EU when no deal seemed really possible. And it seemed like both sides got a taste of what it was like if the UK was isolated, if the UK was shut off, if its European neighbours could not trade with Britain, if the channel didn't 
function, if that back and forth of goods and flows didn't go. And that really seemed like a preview, like a warning call, like a wake up call for everyone of what it looks like if the UK is isolated, what it looks like if the UK has no deal. So now that there is a deal, I think both sides, uh, both the EU and the UK government will tell you this is the start of a friendship. Let's turn the page, new chapter. And in some ways, it's setting a precedent, right? It's setting a precedent for what future relationships with the EU can look like for countries outside the Schengen region. So setting a precedent here, uncharted territory, a lot of rules, a lot of restrictions for businesses to get through and understand. And all of this, of course, happening in the middle of a pandemic. Now, there is no way that these two sides can really cooperate without each other. So there's going to be a lot of sort of signaling and waving the need for cooperation, the need to work together, the need to uh, look at issues like security and climate change in cooperation. But again, uh, so much uncharted territory here and a lot of uncertainty, I think, for businesses, for families, for ordinary Brits, but a lot more certainty than you would get with no deals, Zane. Selma Delaziz, thank you so much for your reporting and we'll have much more First Move after this short break. All right, welcome back, everybody. A lot is happening right now uh, in terms of the British Parliament with this Brexit trade deal that is being voted on. In terms of the second reading of that trade deal, we're told that uh, the eyes had it, 521 votes in favour of the Brexit trade deal in terms of the second reading, 73 people against it. But they are now doing a third reading of the Brexit trade deal, and we will have the results of that. That would be the final vote. We will have the results of that momentarily. Let's bring in Anand Menon. He joins us live now. He's a professor of European politics and foreign affairs at King's College London. Anand, thank you so much for being with us. So just walk us through what you make of uh, this particular vote. Obviously, the third reading is expected to pass and pass significantly. Um, how much of this is a how much of a crowning achievement is this, do you think, for Prime Minister Boris Johnson? He finally got it done just like he said he would. I think it's worth saying this is a massive political triumph for the Prime Minister because against the odds and in the face of people saying it couldn't be done, he's not just taken the UK out of the European Union as he promised to, but he's now also secured a trade deal. Uh, and he's secured a trade deal which hasn't provoked the anger of the Brexit ultras in his own party. Even Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party came out and said that the Brexit war is now over. So he's managed to sign a deal that has appealed even to the most hardline Brexiters in his own party. So there are reasons for him to be hopeful that he has at least temporarily brought to an end the wars over Europe in the Conservative Party that have dogged it since the 1980s. So what did he do differently than Theresa May? I mean, obviously, like the, the, the sort of hardline Conservatives within his own party have said, you know, they actually really like this deal. They prefer it to any deal that, that was discussed with, with Theresa May. They, they like the fact that the UK absolutely now has sovereignty over its laws, that there's no role for the European Court of Justice. But aside from all of that, his negotiating strategy uh, with the EU was vastly different. He made it seem as though he was fully prepared, ready to go out uh, with a bang um, and, and not have any deal whatsoever um, with the EU. No deal Brexit. He was ready for it. That's what he made them think. And, and surely that, that's... OK, let's listen in to what's happening in the, in the, the, in the House of Commons. 73. Yeah. Yeah. The eyes to the right, 521. The nose to the left, 73. The eyes have it, the eyes have it. A look! 
In order to allow the safe exit of members participating in this item of business and the safe arrival of those participating in the next, I'm suspending the House for three minutes. Order. All right, let's, let's bring back in um, Anand Menon. So, Anand, before we sort of cut to uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle speaking there, announcing the results of the vote, I was talking about Boris Johnson's negotiating strategy and his style and how it was differ, different from Theresa May's and how that may have helped uh, when it came to negotiating with Europe. What do you think and what do you make of just how differently Boris Johnson handled this compared to Theresa May? To be honest, I'm not sure I'd agree. I don't think I don't think Boris Johnson received anything from the European Union in particular that another prime minister wouldn't have been able to do. I think what was different was two things. Firstly, Boris Johnson was asking for a far more distant relationship with the EU than the one that Theresa May was asking for. But secondly, and crucially, the fundamental difference between Boris Johnson and Theresa May was that Boris Johnson approached the negotiations with a majority of 80 in the House of Commons and the majority of 80, a parliamentary party that was committed to whatever Brexit he, he chose to negotiate. Theresa May, of course, was in charge of a minority government at the head of a profoundly divided parliamentary party. And it was ultimately that rather than her stance in the negotiations with the EU that led to her downfall. So it wasn't uh, her negotiating style with her, the EU. Um, all right. Well, Anand Menon, Professor of King's College London, thank you so much for being with us. That's it for First Move. Appreciate you being with us. Connect the World is up next. You're watching CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.